Hello, hello. Good morning to you. My name is Matt Howell. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. I want to welcome you. Thank you for joining us. Uh, We hope this to be a place where anybody can come regardless of what they think and believe and feel about spiritual things. And so if you consider yourself spiritual or skeptical, if you consider yourself burned out from Christianity or totally on fire for Jesus or or anywhere in the middle, uh, we're, we're just so thankful to have you hanging out with us here at Redeemer this morning. Well, uh, if you're new, what is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer's a church, of course. And what that means is we're a community of people and we're trying to learn how to love God and to love our neighbor. And the way that we go about trying to learn how to love God and love our neighbor is that we gather together each week like this so that we might worship God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the great hope that we might rest in his love for us. And then we get together throughout the week, individually and over small groups and community groups so that we might remind one another of his love for us. And as we rest in his love and remind one another of his love, we delight to spread throughout Midtown in service so that we might reflect his love. Because we, we, we dream of seeing our city flourishing anew through the redemptive love of Jesus. So that's kind of who we are in a nutshell. We're a community of people. We're trying to learn how to love God. We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, remind, and reflect. And in order to help us do that this fall, what we're doing is we're looking at uh, what is now called the Sermon on the Mount. This is arguably one of the most famous uh, sermons that's ever been preached. It's, it was preached by Jesus himself. And it, there's so much loaded, especially into these first, you know, this introduction, these first 10 verses. We looked at it last week, and here we are again looking at it again this week. And what I want to do is, I, as we get into this, I want to draw your attention again to that word blessed that shows up eight times in a row. Bless, 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 bless. And I know, I just know the word blessed can automatically produce eye rolls in some people because that, that word has been so overused in churchy circles. It's the whole meaning of the word has kind of gotten muddled, I think partly because of the popular hashtag. And uh, it's, it's kind of become a way to, to humble brag about yourself on social media. You post a picture like, oh, look at this amazing vacation I'm on. Blessed. Look at this uh, impressive accomplishment that I was able to you know, achieve. Blessed. And it kind of makes you wonder, is that what blessing is? Is it, is it really just about when life kind of works out for you? Is it, is it about getting kind of a, a new toy or a new gadget or a kind of a, a new job or something? Is that what blessing is? Well, let's talk about it. I, I want to look at this passage. I think this passage instructs us a lot. Let's look at what blessing is and what blessing does. So those are our two big ideas this morning. What blessing is what blessing does. So what is, what is blessing? What does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, bless, 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 bless. Well, last week I said that blessing in its most basic sense has to do with happiness. And that's, and that's true. I, I wanna go a step deeper this week though, because the concept of blessing in the Bible goes all the way back to the Old Testament. In fact, it goes all the way back to the very beginning. In Genesis chapter one, it says, after God creates everything, he, he, he looks at it and he, and he saw that it was good and he blessed it. Now, what is he doing? He's stepping back and he's looking at his creation. He sees that it's good and he blesses it. What, what is that? What is he doing? Well, think about it like this. A couple of weeks ago, I mowed our yard. 
I had, I had kind of let it go untended to for quite a while and the grass had become kind of a small forest in our front and backyard. And so I finally got out there and I started mowing. And by the way, you know you've let the grass grow too long when you're mowing and the grass is so thick, it's clogging the blades underneath the mower and you have to stop and like pull it out every 10 seconds. So that's what I did a couple of weeks ago. But when I was finally done and all the trimmings was done and all the leaves were picked up and everything was kind of trimmed and looking good, I sat on the porch with a cold drink and I just looked at it. I just basked in the glory of a clean freshly mowed yard. Now, what was I doing? I was just enjoying it, delighting in it. When God creates the world and steps back and blesses it, he sees that it's good. He's, he's enjoying it. He's delighting in it. He's looking at it and says, this is good. He, he's giving it his approval. In fact, you could say that's what God, that's what blessing is at its most fundamental sense. It, 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 is, it is God delightfully approving of something. And so much so, we even use this language in our current day and age. If you're, you know, old-fashioned or maybe a little old-school, when a man wants to marry a woman, he will often go to their parents and ask them for their blessing. What's he doing? He's asking for their approval. Will you give your stamp of approval on this relationship? So at the beginning of creation, God, God creates everything. He creates people and he blesses them. And then in Genesis 3... A couple chapters later, humanity rebels against God as their king. And then at the end of Genesis 3, it says God starts cursing his creation. He starts cursing people. You're like, okay, what is that? God's not going all Harry Potter on them. Here's what this means. If to get God's blessing means that you're getting his approval, to get God's curse means to lose his approval. And from that moment on, human history has been trying to recover that deep sense of God's approval. That has left a giant chasm and a hole in every single human heart where we are now craving and striving after validation and affirmation and approval and acceptance. That's the hole that was left in the beginning. For example, uh, I came across this uh, interview that Jimmy Fallon did in, in the Rolling Stone. This was like back in 2011. Fascinating little article or interview. But here's what he says in this particular article. He said, quote, I remember saying to myself, if I don't make it on Saturday Night Live before I'm 25, I'm going to kill myself. It's crazy. I had no other plan. I didn't have friends. I didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't have anything going on. I had my career... And that was it. And then towards the end of this article, in the same interview, he starts to speculate about why it was that it was his career that consumed him. And here's what he says. He says, I think it was the rush of getting a reaction. Maybe it's a thing where you're pleasing somebody. I I wanna be friends with everybody. And if you make a joke and everyone laughs, you're like, that's it, I scored. That's what I thought making a friend was. You just feel like people liked you, so maybe it was that acceptance. Wow. I mean, did you hear that? He he said, all of my success, all of my career, all of my uh, ambition and fame, it was all driven by a deep need and desire for acceptance. He's just articulating what the Bible is talking about, of our need to recover this sense of blessing that we lost in Genesis 3. And by the way, it's not just Jimmy Fallon, it's you, it's me, it's all of us. All of us have this deep 
primal craving for somebody outside of us to look at us and to say, you're doing it right. You're okay. You are valuable. You matter. I accept you. I approve you. I, I, I love you. We are craving this so, we, we are so desperate to get this. I think this is why so many people stay in really unhealthy and toxic relationships. When it makes so much sense, everybody from the outside is like, why don't you just break up with that person? Why don't you just end this? And I think it's because at a deep soul level, they're so hungry for validation and affirmation, they will stay in a really horrible relationship just with the hope that they might get some of that. I think this is why so many people are, are workaholics and they just work nonstop and can't stop. It's because the, the, we need the work or the accomplishments or the sense of productivity. That's what validates us. That's what affirms us. That's what starts to fill that hole a little bit. I mean, I think this is why um, we post on social media, right? I mean, we post a picture, we post an article, we post a quote, and then we just sit back and we wait and we hope for the, for the verdict of the internet to come in with validation and acceptance in the form of likes and comments and retweets. We could tell ourselves all day long, it doesn't matter what anybody thinks of me, the only, the only person that matters what thinks of me is me. We can tell ourselves that, but the problem is nobody lives like that. All of us demonstrate day in and day out that we are all craving, hungering after somebody from the outside of us to affirm us and accept us. We, we can try as hard as we want all day long to tell it to ourselves, but it doesn't work. We need somebody from the outside to do it. And what's fascinating is here comes Jesus right out of the gate pronouncing blessing. Notice, he doesn't say blessed will be these people if they do a bunch of stuff. He just starts making the pronouncement, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who people who mourn. And he's showing you, as we talked about last week, the approval of God cannot be earned. It can only be received. And that is really good news because if you can't earn it, then when you have it, that means you cannot lose it. Jesus is offering to you the eternal embrace of God that you and I were made for, that we're longing for, that we're hungering for. And he gives it to us free of charge, free for us. It cost him his life in order to give it. It was enormously expensive for him, but it's free for us. That's what blessing is. That's what the Bible is talking about when it talks about blessing, the delight and approval and affirmation of God given to you completely by grace. Now, if that's what it is, what does it do? If you get that, you get it into your bloodstream, as it were, what does that do? Well, here's what it does. It immediately connects you to a bigger story. It immediately connects you to a bigger story. Look at the end of verse three. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And then he uses this familiar Bible phrase, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God basically refers to God's reign, R-E-I-G-N, not R-A-I-N, but God's reign as king. The kingdom of God is talking about being ushered into a way of life where God's at the center, where he's on the throne, where he is the king. And then if you notice at the end of this passage, verse 10, he says it again, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This whole introduction is bracketed by the promise 
of God's kingdom. Jesus is saying God's blessing, his approval, his validation, it ushers you into his kingdom. It ushers you into this bigger story. In, 19, in the early 1960s, John, uh, John F. Kennedy, he articulated his vision for space exploration and he challenged the nation that by the end of the decade, we're gonna put a man on the moon. And I heard this story of when he went to like the NASA headquarters and he's walking around the NASA headquarters. He's walking down this hallway and he sees like a janitor um, pushing a broom and, and kind of sweeping the floors. And he goes up to the, to the man and he says, excuse me, sir, what are you doing? And the man said, Mr. President, I'm helping put a man on the moon. Here's this man in his little corner of the world doing his thing and he sees himself as part of this bigger story this bigger mission. That's what happens when the blessing of God comes into you. When, 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 when you receive the approval of God, it, it means that you see yourself as now part of a bigger story, the story of the kingdom, the story of God's uh, will being done on earth as it is in heaven. When you get connected to that bigger story, I think it does two things. It pulls you outside of yourself and it pulls you outside of this life. Now, let me kind of unpack what I mean by that. When you're connected to the bigger story of the kingdom, it pulls you outside of yourself and outside of this life. What do I mean by it pulling you outside of yourself? Look at verse five. Jesus says, blessed or blessed, blessed are the meek. Now to be meek means that you have come to terms with the fact that life is not about you. It means that you no longer have to insist on your rights. You no longer demand to be front and center. You are totally okay with serving in the shadows. You can make the spotlight about somebody else and, and, and have the glory go to somebody else. If I'm relating to you because at a deep soul level, I need you to validate me, I need your approval, then that means I, I cannot love you. It means that I, I'm so hungry for something from you that this relationship is really ultimately about me. I'm just using you to get what I want. But if that need has already been met in Jesus, if the gospel of grace has already flooded that hole in my soul, as it were, with a sense of I have his blessing, I have his approval, I am now freed to finally love you. I don't need validation from you in the same way that I, that I needed it before. And so I'm free to serve you. I'm pulled outside of myself. And when you're pulled outside of yourself, you stop being a consumer. You stop consuming people. You stop consuming churches. You stop consuming Midtown. You stop asking the question, okay, what's in it for me? And you start asking the question, how can I serve? How can I expend myself for the sake of other people? John Ortberg, who's a famous uh, author, theologian, pastor, professor, in his book, All the Places to Go, here's what he writes. He says, Christians should always be asking one another, what's your problem? By the way, what he means by that is, what is something in your life, what's a problem that you're trying to fix? Something that is worthy of your energy and your efforts to try to fix this problem. He says, tell me what your problem is and I'll tell you who you are. People with small souls have small problems. Small problems like how to make their life safer, more convenient, how to put an irritating neighbor in his or her place, how to make wrinkles less visible, how to cope with cranky coworkers or lack of recognition. 
But people with, but people who live with largeness of soul are occupied with large problems. Large problems like how to end poverty, how to stop sex trafficking, how to help at-risk children receive a great education, how to bring beauty and art to a city. You need a God-sized problem. If you don't have one, your current problem is you don't have a problem. Because when God calls people, he calls them to face a problem. The standard word for a condition of being truly problem-free is dead. Now, that's an intense quote, I know. But you see his point. His point is when Jesus calls us, he calls us outside of ourselves to take on big problems in the world. In fact, you see this in this very passage. Look at verse 6. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, we're going to look at this in a couple of weeks, but the, the actual word for righteousness in Greek is the same word that gets translated elsewhere in the New Testament as justice. Blessed are those who hunger and crave after justice, who want the world to be set right. Now, you know, when you're hungry and you're craving for food, that triggers you into action. You go get some food. You go pick up some Taco Bell. You go swing by the cookout. When you are hungering and craving for justice, that means that you stop cocooning yourself in comfort and convenience, and you start to pursue justice and righteousness in the city. Here's another one. Look at verse seven, the very next verse. Blessed are the merciful. To be merciful is to have compassion for people in need. He is saying the community of Jesus doesn't exist just for itself. In fact, William Temple, who was a pastor in the 20th century, has this famous quote. He says, the church is the only institution in the world that exists for the benefits of those who are not its members. The church doesn't exist for itself. That's the kind of church we want Redeemer to be. That's the kind of church we want Redeemer to be known for, a church that is merciful, a church that when we see somebody in need, we don't avoid them, we don't run away from them, but we run towards them to try to creatively figure out how to meet their need. And then look at verse nine. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. The word peace in the Bible is the word shalom, which means universal flourishing, comprehensive well-being for the entire world. You want to think about a big problem to take on? How about comprehensive flourishing for planet Earth? That's a pretty big problem. But here's the point. The blessing of God is not meant to just flow to you. It's meant to flow through you. When you receive God's blessing, it pulls you outside of yourself to take on big problems. And then here's the, here's the last thing it does. When the blessing of God comes to you and it connects you to the story of the kingdom, it doesn't just pull you outside of yourself. It also pulls you outside of this life. Here, here's what I mean. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, blessed are you, blessed are those who are persecuted. In other words, blessed are you when people reject you and misunderstand you and mock you and hurt you. Now, how in the world can scorn and ridicule and mockery and loss be a good thing? Is Jesus like being a masochist here? Like what's going on? Well, remember these aren't promises. Remember these aren't commands, they are promises. He's not, he's not saying, I want you to seek after rejection and exclusion. I want, I want you to uh, experience really hard things. He's saying, no, when rejection comes, when suffering comes, when persecution comes, blessed are you. 
because you have a hope outside of this life that not even persecution and loss and suffering can take away from you. He is saying, when you have the kingdom, you are a part of a story that pulls you outside of this life. You have an unshakable hope beyond this life. I mean, look at how much of this passage is future-oriented promises. Verse four, they will be comforted. Verse five, they shall inherit the earth. Verse six, they shall be satisfied. Verse seven, they shall receive mercy. Verse eight, they shall see God. Verse nine, they shall be called sons of God. He is assuring you, when you have the approval of God, you also have a rock solid, eternal, unshakable hope. You have the hope of the promise of the future kingdom and the new heavens, the new earth, when everything will be made new and nothing can be taken away from you. See, here's the thing. If your hope is rooted in things in this life, that means your hope is severely fragile. If your greatest joy is connected to money or family or success, then your joy goes away the moment those things get lost. Your hope is extremely and utterly fragile. It is completely at the mercy of circumstances if it's connected to something in this life. But if your hope is rooted in something eternal and unshakable, the very kingdom of God, then you can experience suffering and persecution and devastating loss and it'll be utterly painful. And yet it also has the capacity to drive you deeper into the source of your joy, deeper into the source of your hope. This is what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter six. He starts listing out all of these horrible things that have happened to him, beatings and imprisonment and and sleepless nights and all, all these horrible things. And here's what he says in verses 10, verse 10. He says, we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing, yet possessing everything. What? (laughs) How can you be sorrowful and at the same time always rejoicing? How can you have nothing and yet possess everything? Because you have a hope outside of this life. That's how. This means that if you are lonely, there is a day coming when you will experience real intimacy. If you are devastated because you have experienced crushing loss, there is a day coming when you will experience real comfort. If you are chronically sick, there is a day coming when you will be healed. If you have experienced oppression, there will be justice. If you are struggling to make, to make ends meet, th- there will be real riches. If you are constantly overlooked, you, you will receive real recognition and a validation. In the kingdom of God, you will miss out on nothing in the end. That's what the blessing of God does. It connects you to this bigger story of the kingdom and that pulls you outside of yourself and it pulls you outside of this life and it is free and it is available in Jesus. Free for you, utterly costly for him. The question is, will you receive it? Will you receive this validation and blessing that your soul longs for and then just step back and watch how it transforms you from the inside out? Consider that an invitation. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to bring 
our desperation for you, our, uh, to you, our, our longing for validation and approval that we look for in sex and money and work and social media and everything, that would we bring our, our vacancy to you that we might receive your blessing and your favor and your grace? And would you, in your kindness, use that very blessing to transform us? We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.